Hello everyone, this is Adam from Appalachia, and you're listening to Carrie Parker's Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 227 for July 5th, 2021, and uh, so in the U.S. at least, I hope you enjoyed your long 4th of July weekend. And honestly, it, I really hope that there were no wildfires started due to fireworks or something this weekend. Of course, I'm recording this before the weekend is over, so I don't know if there's been any crazy news stories about that yet. But I have got my fingers crossed. It is really nasty out west here in the U.S. and uh, Canada out west, too. So today we've got a news show for you. Lots of stories to catch you up on. And fortunately, almost none of them are good. Uh, and most of them are cybersecurity problems. So <laughs> stay tuned because high likelihood that one of these will affect you. Before we get into that, I just wanted to say a very sincere thank you to all of the new patrons that have joined up. Um, the Challenge Coin promotion was a big success and it has come to a close. Uh, now I've got plenty of coins left, so I'll probably do another one of these if I had to guess before the end of the year. So stay tuned. Uh, there will be other opportunities to get one of these really cool coins. But I also just want to take a moment to say that I really feel like I'm, you know, finally kind of building a community here. It's just been great to see the new patrons come in, and I really enjoy interacting with everybody on Discord, you know, finally getting some give and take with my audience. And frankly, it's inspiring me to do even more cool stuff, not just with my patrons, but with the podcast in general. And I'll talk about a specific thing I'm going to try doing, which I have never done before for the podcast. That should be a lot of fun, but it's going to be kind of crazy. <laughs> and I'll uh, tell you about that at the end of today's show. But we've got a lot of news to get through first. Uh, so first of all, I want to talk about yet another LinkedIn, technically not really a data breach, but it may as well be one. Basically 92% uh, of all LinkedIn's users' data has been posted online. Now, most of this data is supposedly public, but some of it definitely probably is not. Uh, we'll delve into that and let you know what to expect there. There was a really interesting uh, iPhone Wi-Fi hack that basically rendered your iPhone's Wi-Fi completely unusable, but it probably didn't affect you, but it's still kind of interesting to talk about. And then we'll talk about up to, I guess, 30 million Dell devices, that would be computers and laptops, uh, are at risk from a really nasty BIOS attack. And I'll tell you how you can mitigate your risk there. And then if you happen to be an owner of a Western Digital MyBook Live NAS device, Network Attached Storage, or fancy name for a file server, um, if you happen to have one of these, you may have had a very rude awakening last week where uh, you woke up to find that your device had been completely wiped clean. We'll talk about what happened there and uh, what you can do about it, though. Honestly, if you really were affected by that, you're probably probably not a whole lot you can do. Nevertheless... Um, Western Digital is offering a little bit of mitigation for you. Then we're going to talk about the Revil ransomware gang. They've got another attack that has hit many different companies using a supply chain attack. And then we're going to talk about a Microsoft printer server vulnerability that's really nasty and how you can protect yourself from that. Russian hackers are still at it and will always be at it. And they are trying to brute force passwords on a bunch of different networks, hundreds according to this article. And then we'll talk about a, a warning about another kind of a supply chain hack for some software from ThruTech that is making a lot of security cameras, including, you know, baby monitors and things like that, vulnerable to attack. 
And finally, we're going to have, a, I guess, a little bit of promising news about potentially squelching some robocalls and a new law that basically just went into effect here in the U.S. and what that might mean for you. And that will lead into our tip of the week. So, lots to cover. Let's get started. All right, first up, LinkedIn has been hacked yet again. And they're going to claim, of course, that they weren't hacked. And we'll talk about what that means here as I read this article. Uh, But basically, 700 million LinkedIn profiles were shared on the dark web that includes a lot of very personal details. And apparently that's about 92% of all LinkedIn users. So if you use LinkedIn, chances are you've been affected by this. But it may not be quite as bad as it sounds. It's still not good. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. But let me read this article from CPO Magazine. And CPO in this sense is Chief Privacy Officer. It's really actually a great magazine. I got uh, hooked up to it when I got my privacy certification. Anyway, here's the article. Another social media platform API, and API stands for Application Programming Interface, has been abused for data scraping, this time the one belonging to business networking giant LinkedIn, which, by the way, is owned by Microsoft now. A listing offering 700 million LinkedIn profiles appeared on an underground hacker forum, and reporters with privacy news site Restore Privacy, which is a great site, verified that a sample of 1 million of these profiles was legitimate. The profiles appear to mostly contain public-facing information, but in some cases have included geolocation data and may have also included contact information that was only meant to be accessed by authorized contacts on the site. LinkedIn confirmed that their API was used for data scraping at this scale, but says that some of the included information was from outside of the site. LinkedIn claims that, quote, no private information, unquote, is to be found among the most recent collection of its profiles, but some of what was leaked appears to be items that were not intended for the general public. The sample of 1 million LinkedIn profiles was found to contain full names, LinkedIn usernames and profile URLs, email addresses, phone numbers, physical addresses, geolocation records, gender and usernames for other social media accounts. The geolocation data likely came from GPS tracking of mobile device users who logged in through the app. Which, by the way, is another reason I don't like to install a lot of these apps on my phone. I'll just go to the web interface. At least least I can't get access to all my phone data. As is the case with all large-scale data scraping of this sort, the primary risk to LinkedIn users is that the information will be put to use to craft convincing identity theft and phishing attempts. The hacker offered the data for $5,000, but the price usually comes down on combination files such as this as they are distributed more widely. Tim Mackey, principal security strategist for Synopsys Software Integrity Group, expects an increase in API data scraping given that it, given that it is easy and can be converted to cash. And this is a quote from uh, Tim Mackey. He says, quote, from a user's perspective, there's no difference between a data breach where company servers were hacked and someone misusing an API to obtain their data. Data loss is data loss, and attackers will find the simplest way to obtain the data that they need to fund their operations. As successful attacks on infrastructure become more difficult to execute, attackers will naturally shift their focus to abusing legitimate access methods like APIs provided by businesses to access data. Where legitimate users care about terms of service, criminals won't. This is an important detail for anyone exposing an API on the internet. It's only a matter of time before your APIs are discovered and abused. So the key question then becomes, how quickly can you detect abnormal usage and take corrective action? The more powerful your API, 
the more attractive it will be to criminals, unquote. It's still unclear at this point as to how all of the quote-unquote extra information that LinkedIn claims came from other sources got into the collection of LinkedIn profiles. A screenshot posted by Restore Privacy of the hacker's source file shows fields that are not listed in LinkedIn's documentation of what is generally available through the API, such as inferred salary. This raises a couple of possibilities. One is that the hackers may have had access to a higher-level API for perusing LinkedIn profiles that is not available to those outside of the organization. Another is that the data was actually obtained from a third-party data broker, something that LinkedIn would probably not like to admit to. While data scraping is against LinkedIn's terms of service, there is no real penalty for it besides the potential banning of a paid marketing account that has access to the API. Since users technically quote-unquote volunteered this information to the service, civil penalties are also highly unlikely. The incident creates an added need to be vigilant against scam and social engineering attempts for those who trusted LinkedIn with their personal information. The most serious information included in the breach is likely going to be the geolocation data, which Tom's Guide found sometimes referred to specific residential houses. And Tom's Guide is another great online publication. Okay, so there's more to this article than that, but that certainly gives you the general gist. And, you know, as I like to say, the only data that can't be stolen is data that doesn't exist. Uh, And ideally, data that never existed. But you can take it into your own hands to go and delete data, and hopefully it will eventually disappear from the earth and will not be able to be hacked or scraped or whatever. Now, I would suggest, like you do with every single social media service that you interact with or any service, honestly, that allows you to do this, like Google, Facebook, etc., that you every so often go and download all of your data. Because of GDPR and the EU, many of these companies now have to have a way for you to get access to your data. Now, it's not always in a very friendly format for you, but at least you can get this data. And uh, if you're at all worried about the LinkedIn stuff, you should go and get your data. Now, it's not clear that all of this data that's available to you directly is also in these profiles that were leaked on the web, but I would assume that that is certainly possible. Now, I went and got my data, and I'll tell you how to get yours as well, and it's actually very simple. Just log into your LinkedIn account and go to your settings, and then right there, it should be very obvious that there's a thing for uh, get a copy of your data. Now, this will take a couple days. I got mine in two chunks. They sent me, within 24 hours, I got a link for like all my basic information. And then about 24 hours later, I got another link for everything. And for me, it's not a whole lot. I mean, I do use LinkedIn, but I don't use it a ton. And I do have some privacy settings turned on that probably prevented it from capturing some data. But it basically had everything. It had everything I'd pretty much ever posted to LinkedIn. Uh, in some cases, it was it was only the current information, like what's available on my profile right now. Some of it was, you know, things I've done in the past, like messages that I've sent and received, likes that I've given and to articles, people that I followed, people that followed me, and so on and so on. Personally, the one that I found most interesting was one that they called inferences. And this is basically, I'm, honestly, I'm surprised they shared this, but it's things that they have inferred about me. Uh, And it wasn't that long. There's maybe, I actually have two LinkedIn accounts, one from uh, my old life uh, as a software developer and one for the business. And I looked at both of them and it's got some interesting inferences about me, several of which were just wrong. Like in one of them, it thought I was a recruiter 
and with every one of these inferences, by the way, it has a description of, in, uh, of where it thinks it may have gotten this. Like this one says, based on factors such as your experience and profile headline. Now, I don't know why they thought that made me a recruiter, but they were wrong. I'm not a recruiter. Here are some other ones that they have in here, and these are like titles. So one is career stability, and the description for that is employee with consistency in industry, company, job title, and other factors. So apparently I have a stable career. That's that's pretty factual. It says I'm a job seeker, um, which I think somewhere I checked the box saying that I was open to getting offers. Now, the one for the business says I'm at the early stage of my career, which is totally wrong, but maybe just based on how recently I created the account. I don't know. It lists me as unemployed, which I guess technically is true. It says I'm a people leader. Also says I'm a student, which in this case just means that I've taken some online classes. It says I'm a sales professional. That's not really true. It says I'm a human resources professional. Also not true. It says I'm a small or medium-sized business owner. Yeah, that's true calls me a senior leader, which seems to sort of contradict the early stage of career thing. It lists that I am in growth stage of career, which, you know, I suppose may be technically true for the business. It also says I have a likelihood to be a marketer. I suppose that's true. I'm trying to market my business anyway. And so that was the business profile. And there were some other ones on my personal profile that a lot of them were similar. Even then, it said I was a recruiter and a student, and I was at the growth stage of my career, and unemployed, which I guess I guess that is true. Calls me a sales professional, which I'm not. Anyway, not sure where they're getting those inferences, but they're using those inferences to send me, you know, articles that they think I might be interested in, and referring me to other people that might be interested in me, and they got a lot of that stuff wrong. So anyway, I thought that was interesting, and you might find that interesting as well. So. It's always good to go look and see what they have on you, especially when they actually tell you what they're inferring about you, which I would think a lot of them don't do. I bet that's only a minor part of what LinkedIn has inferred about me. But anyway, all right, let's move on. All right, next up, short article here about a really clever hack on an iPhone based on a Wi-Fi SSID. And this is from the Hacker News. A wireless network naming bug has been discovered in Apple's iOS operating system that effectively disables an iPhone's ability to connect to a Wi-Fi network. The issue was spotted by security researcher Carl Shu, who found that the phone's Wi-Fi functionality gets permanently disabled after joining a Wi-Fi network with the unusual name %P, %S, 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 %N, even after rebooting the phone or changing the network's name, in other words, switching to a different Wi-Fi network, or trying to. The bug could have serious implications in that bad actors could exploit the issue to plant fraudulent Wi-Fi hotspots with the name in question and break the device's wireless networking features. The issue stems from a string formatting bug, and I'll explain that in a minute, in the manner iOS parses that SSID input, triggering a denial of service in the process, according to a short analysis published on Saturday, and it gives the name of the security researcher, which I would just butcher. While the issue isn't reproducible on Android devices, iPhones that have been affected by the problem would need to have their iOS network security settings reset by going to Settings, General, Reset, Reset Network Settings, and confirm the action. So, you probably have not been bitten by this, but I thought it was interesting, and it's there. it just goes to show how many different ways we can be hacked. And in this case, it, it probably wouldn't have caused, you know, vulnerability of your data or anything like that, but it would render your device unusable if you tried to connect to this really weird Wi-Fi network. Probably if you saw a name like that, you would think that's weird and, <laughs> and you wouldn't even try to connect to it. 
but I said I would explain the string formatting thing. If you've ever coded in C or perhaps even Perl or Python or some other ones that kind of use the same coding syntax, when you're trying to print a string in a fancy way, that is you're trying to output some phrase or string of characters or words or whatever to the screen or to a terminal window or something like that, the C computing language that's been around forever gives you these little formatting strings that lets you kind of tell the computer you know, how it should interpret the characters that you're about to give it. So in the thing, you might say, hi, my name is percent %s, uh, and that is your control string. And then that percent %s, you would replace with a variable. And so maybe you replace it with Carrie or Joe or Jane or whatever. Um, but that string basically tells the computer, you're going to print out these words and where the percent %s goes, you're going to replace that with whatever data I give you. So in this case, it's got percent %p, percent %s, and percent %n. So p in this case is for a pointer, a software pointer, which is a long integer that's basically a memory address. Percent %s is a string, and percent %n is really a goofy thing. You might be, if you're semi-familiar with coding, you might think, oh, that's just a new line character or a line break. No, no, percent %n is something even weirder than that. It, it's the C language is nothing if not powerful, and it allows you to do really horrible things if you're not careful, which a lot of programmers like. But man, it could get you in serious trouble if you're not careful. Anyway, that's that's what all these percents were about. And so basically, this guy figured out that if he named his Wi-Fi network with this weird string, that some interpreter inside Apple's iPhone Wi-Fi code didn't handle that properly and went off into the weeds and got all messed up. How this guy thought to do this, I can't imagine. But he did. We found it. And uh, I'm sure Apple's going to get that fixed right away. Uh, and in the meantime, if you see any Wi-Fi networks like that, don't join them. All right, next up, uh, this is an article from ThreatPost uh, about a pretty nasty bug in Dell computers. A high-severity series of four vulnerabilities can allow remote adversaries to gain arbitrary code execution in the pre-boot environment on Dell devices, researchers said. They affect an estimated 30 million individual Dell endpoints worldwide. Now, let me stop for a second. So this is from ThreatPost, which is more technical than most. So when they say endpoints, they mean computers. And when they say arbitrary code execution... That's bad. That means that the bad guys can run their software on your computer, which means they can do just about anything. And this is vulnerable remotely, which is the worst kind. Remote Code Execution, RCE. All right, back to the article. It says, according to analysis from Eclipsium, the bugs affected 129 models of laptops, tablet, and desktops, including enterprise and consumer devices that are protected by Secure Boot. Secure Boot is a security standard aimed at making sure that a device boots using only software that is trusted by the device's original equipment manufacturer, or OEM, to prevent rogue takeovers. Well, they obviously messed this one up. The bugs allow privileged network adversaries to circumvent Secure Boot protections, control the device's boot process, and subvert the operating system and higher-level security controls, researchers at Eclipsium said on Thursday. And uh, this would have been probably last Thursday for you maybe two Thursdays to go. They carry a cumulative CVSS score of 8.3 out of 10. Specifically, the issues affect the BIOS Connect feature with Dell Support Assistant, which is a technical support solution that comes pre-installed on most Windows-based Dell machines. 
BIOS Connect is used to perform remote OS recoveries or to update the firmware on the device. And this is a quote from one of the researchers. It says, quote, Technology vendors of all types are increasingly implementing over-the-air update processes to make it as easy as possible for their customers to keep their firmware up-to-date and recover from system failures. And while this is a valuable option, any vulnerabilities in these processes, such as those we've seen here in Dell's BIOS Connect, can have serious consequences, unquote. The report noted that the specific vulnerabilities allow an attacker to remotely exploit the UEFI firmware of a host and gain control over the most privileged code on the device. Any attack scenario would require an attacker to be able to redirect the victim's traffic, such as via a man-in-the-middle attack, something that's not much of a barrier, researchers said, and I'll circle back to that in a minute. The groundwork effort to carry out an attack is likely a positive trade-off for cybercriminals, given that a successful compromise of the BIOS of a device would allow attackers to establish ongoing persistence while controlling the highest privileges on the device. This is because they would control the process of loading the host operating system and would be able to disable protections in order to remain undetected, the report noted. Dell has now pushed out patches for BIOS for all the affected systems, for details, refer to its advisory. And if you go to the show notes and find the link to this article, you'll find the link to that advisory. And this is another quote from Eclipsium. Uh, the rep says, quote, It is advisable to run the BIOS update executable from the OS after manually checking the hashes against those published by Dell rather than relying on BIOS Connect to apply BIOS updates, unquote. So yeah, obviously, at this point, if you're compromised, then the update mechanism would also be compromised. So I, I know this was technical, and that's because this is a pretty technical attack. Uh, if you've got a Dell device, you probably should go look at this article, or maybe you probably got an email from Dell on this already if your device is registered, which it should be. But yeah, I mean, at this point, if you've got a Dell that has a secure boot feature and has BIOS Connect, if you really want to be sure, then you should probably download the BIOS update and install it manually through the operating system instead of relying on the automatic update to do it and make sure you've got the right version. And it's mentioned here that you should uh, check the hashes. This is unfortunately not something that's just easy to describe how to do. You need to find a tool that will calculate the hash of the right sort. And basically what that's doing is it's kind of getting a fingerprint for the download. And so you need to make sure that you get this from an official Dell site. Uh, that site should list the fingerprint value, the hash value for that software. You'll need to download it. You'll need to find a way to verify the hash and double check that they are the same. And then you need to install it. And I know that that just went over the heads of a lot of you. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. But again, you might want to find a link to this article if you've got a Dell laptop or computer that uses Secure Boot and make sure that you've got the latest version of your BIOS installed. Again, check the show notes uh, for a link to this article. And from there, you can jump off to all these other ones I've been mentioning. Oh, and I did want to mention real quick. So these researchers basically said that it's not that hard to do a man-in-the-middle attack. It, that's not true. It, I mean, sure, you know, if you're the NSA, the CIA, China, Russia, you know, or a big-time hacker group, you could probably make this work if it's a focused attack. This is not something you're going to just generally be able to do on everybody who owns a Dell. You know, so somebody would have to be probably targeting you or your company specifically to try to pull this off. So when it says that it's quote-unquote not much of a barrier. This is from, you know, heavy-duty security researchers who would know how to do this. But generally speaking today, it's not trivial to do. Certainly not, you know, in a broad-spectrum way. It would be kind of, it would have to be targeting you or your company specifically. 
All right, moving on. This next one could affect a lot of you. Um, this is about Western Digital MyBook Live devices. These are backup file servers that you use for storing files or backing up files. And this particular story is about a device that has been end of life, something that they've stopped supporting a long time ago. So it may not affect you, but if you've got one of these things, you definitely need to listen up. All right, here's an article from Apple Insider. Those who own devices in Western Digital's MyBook Live line woke up on Wednesday, and this I think was last Wednesday or the Wednesday before, to find their devices have been wiped clean in an attack being attributed to malware. Western Digital customers worldwide are discovering that years of data have been wiped clean without a trace and seemingly factory reset. Additionally, users cannot log into their devices with their user set passwords or the manufacturer's default password. The issue is currently known only to affect MyBook Live devices, which saw their final firmware update in 2015. The devices were sold from 2010 until 2014, but have been discontinued since then. So basically what that means is these are older devices that Western Digital stopped supporting like six years ago. While the issue was initially thought only to affect a few users, more users are taking to the forums to report that their devices have also been wiped. However, it's not currently known how many users are being affected. It seems as though MyBookLive devices received a remote command on June 23rd to begin a factory restore on June 23rd with the script set to run overnight. MyBookLive devices are stored behind a firewall and are accessed via the MyBookLive app or through internet browsers. Some users suspect that Western Digital servers were hacked, allowing a bad actor to send out a remote factory reset command. Western Digital told Bleeping Computer that they were investigating the attacks but do not believe that its servers are at fault. Instead, they suggest an unpatched vulnerability is the cause of the problem. Currently, this attack is suggested to only be destructive in nature. There have been no reports of any party asking for ransom. It appears that Western Digital knew about the security flaw well before the recent exploitation. Western Digital forum user The Tick reports finding reports of the vulnerability that allows for remote command execution as far back as 2019. Years earlier, Western Digital told WISCASE, W-I-S-C-A-S-E, that they were no longer responsible for MyBookLive devices. At the time, the company considered them to be quote-unquote legacy devices since they had been discontinued years prior. To prevent further data loss, Western Digital advises users to unplug MyBookLive devices from the internet as soon as possible. And I assume by further data loss, they mean more people being affected because if you've been affected, all your data was lost. So there was been an update to this. Uh, also from Apple Insider, where Western Digital has some sort of response to this. And let me read that next. Customers who are affected by the MyBookLive device attack will be eligible for data recovery services provided by Western Digital and a trade-in program that will allow them to upgrade to a supported MyCloud device. Western Digital has come forward and proposed a plan of action to help those who lost data in the June 23rd attack. Customers affected... We're using legacy devices in the MyBookLive and MyBookLive Duo line. Their devices were remotely wiped by a still unidentified group or groups of bad actors. The devices were introduced to the market in 2010 and received a final firmware update in 2015. Customers who lost data will be eligible for a data recovery service from Western Digital. In addition, customers will also be offered a trade-in program that will allow them to trade up to a currently supported MyCloud device. Western Digital states that both programs will be available at some point in July with details being announced in the near future. So if you happen to have one of these devices, I would recommend that you register it now with Western Digital if you haven't already. Obviously, if you have lost your data, you're going to want to pay attention to whatever they offer you 
perhaps there is some tool they could provide, a software tool to help you try to undelete your data. And I've talked about this before, but basically, depending on how you delete data, a lot of times it's very recoverable. Often what you really do when you're trying to delete data on a hard drive is all you do is mark that data as no longer used. It doesn't actually disappear unless you actively write over that data somehow. So if all this software did was say, okay, mark this entire hard drive as empty and ready to be written over, then really all the data that was there is still there and perhaps recoverable with the right software tool. So if this happened to you, don't give up hope. You might be able to get your data back and look for that, uh, look for that notice from Western Digital on how to do that. All right, so here's a couple things that article didn't talk about. Obviously, it heavily implied that these are really old devices, so, you know, maybe people shouldn't be using them anymore. Uh, you know, they stopped supporting them six years ago. But here's the thing. Um, these devices probably still work just fine. I mean, they, they physically will store your data and regurgitate it back to you on request. That's a working storage device. So why would anybody spend the money to replace that when it's working? But here's the problem. Today, when all these devices are now cloud-connected by default, like that's how they function in a lot of cases, that means that they're still vulnerable, uh, even after they're quote-unquote no longer supported. And, you know, Western Digital is a big company. They've got a brand to protect. Honestly, they really should be, I think, doing more here to protect people. Now, this is another reason why you definitely want to register your products, because they probably did send out an email, which I suppose you could be you know, ignoring, but it, it, they would say, hey, this is no longer uh, being supported. There's no more software updates. Uh, and that honestly should be your cue to replace it. Because at this point, even though it's still functioning, if it still connects to the internet, it's vulnerable and not going to get patched. And in fact, in this case, Western Digital was made aware of a hack, a vulnerability on this that they just did not fix in 2018. Because that was three years after they had said they were no longer going to support it. And so these things, for at least for three years now, have been out there. And if they've been connected to the Internet, uh, have been vulnerable to this. In fact, and this is really crazy, I've actually even heard that many of these devices, I think someone did a, a quick scan of the Internet looking for how many of these devices are available uh, on the Internet, which you can it's a, something you can do if you know how to do it. Uh, and there was, I think, over 5,000 of them that they found. I'm not sure when that was run. But, you know, many, many of these devices were vulnerable and available to be hacked and probably already were hacked from what I heard. So this was almost like a dueling bad guy scenario where they were hacked once and some other bad guy came around and unhacked them by basically wiping them clean. So, again, the upshot here really for you is that any device you have that connects to the internet for any sort of a cloud service, you need to have that registered and be paying attention to when software updates come out uh, for that device and make sure it gets updated. Honestly, these devices should be required to auto update. But until that is true, uh, you need to be on top of it yourself. Uh, another option, of course, if it works just fine without connecting it to the internet, you could just disconnect it. But like in this case, I'm sure it was a network drive, meaning that if you wanted to connect to it just from within your home local network, it needed to be on the network. And some function inside of it was also phoning home. And by the way, these devices that were end of life six years ago can still be bought brand new off Amazon. I am looking at one right now. Western Digital MyBook Live 2 terabyte personal cloud storage NAS for 280 bucks. 
So even when you're buying something new, you need to somehow check to see if it's still supported. But the other takeaway is this. Today, so much of our lives are digital. Things that used to be physical and tangible, real world things like photos and even like home movies on VHS tape and documents, ID cards, tax stuff, financial stuff, medical stuff. You know, they used to be paper documents that we could put in a file cabinet, maybe even put in a fire safe. And, you know, they might get old, they might tear, they might, you know, get worn, they might yellow uh, over time. But, you know, that's pretty durable medium, actually. Now that things are digital, you know, they can be preserved perfectly forever. But it's also binary in the sense that once it stops working, if it's corrupted or deleted or uh, encrypted by ransomware, it's gone. So you need to make sure that you're backing up your data in multiple places. You need to follow the 321 backup rule. And that is you need at least three copies of anything that you can't replace. You should have at least two different storage media for that backup. Like, for instance, an external hard drive and a thumb drive or a cloud drive. You know, different backup technologies, at least two different backup technologies for those backups. And at least one of your backups needs to be off-site. That is not like an external hard drive com connected to your regular computer or a NAS drive or really even a thumb drive that's sitting next to your computer. Because if your house floods, if it burns down, if a tornado hits, earthquake, if you're robbed, whatever, that all can happen to both those devices, then you're still screwed. So you need to have at least one of those backups off-site, like in the cloud or maybe in a a second external drive that you kind of take to work and leave at the office, something. I just did a blog article on this and a newsletter article on this. You can go to my website to read uh, more up on that. Or if you are already a newsletter subscriber, you've already gotten that info. But I just want to make sure I cover that. That's one of the top five tips I always give out. Backup, backup, backup. All right, the Revil Ransomware Group, that's R-E-V-I-L, is back in the news uh, and this is an article from Bleeping Computer about maybe up to 200 companies that have been affected by this supply chain attack. A massive Revil ransomware attack affects multiple managed service providers, or MSPs, and their clients through a reported CASEYA, that's K-A-S-E-Y-A, supply chain attack. Starting this afternoon, and this article is from July 2nd, the Revil ransomware gang, a.k.a. Sodino Kibi, targeted MSPs with thousands of customers through what appears to be a CASIA VSA supply chain attack. At this time, there are eight known large MSPs that have been hit as part of the supply chain attack. CASIA VSA is a cloud-based MSP platform that allows providers to perform patch management and client monitoring for their customers. Huntress Labs' John Hammond has told Bleeping Computer that all of the affected MSPs are using CASIA VSA and that they have proof that their customers are being encrypted as well. And this is a quote from Hammond. He says, quote, We have three Huntress partners that are impacted with roughly 200 businesses encrypted, unquote. Casilla issued a security advisory on their help desk site, warning all VSA customers to immediately shut down their VSA server to prevent the attack spreading while investigating. In a statement to Bleeping Computer, Casilla stated that they have shut down their SAAS, or Software as a Service, servers, and are working with other security firms to investigate the incident. Most large-scale ransomware attacks are conducted late at night over the weekend when there is less staff to monitor the network. As this attack happened midday on a Friday, the threat actors likely planned the time to coincide with the July 4th weekend in the USA, where it is common for staff to have a shorter workday before the holidays. 
A sample of the Revil ransomware used in one of these attacks has been shared with Bleeping Computer. However, it is unknown if this is a sample used for every victim or if each MSP received its own ransom demand. The ransomware gang is demanding $5 million ransom to receive a decryptor from one of the samples. While Revil is known to steal data while deploying the ransomware and encrypting devices, it is unknown if the attackers exfiltrated any files. MSPs are a high-value target for ransomware gangs as they offer an easy channel to infecting many companies through a single breach, yet the attacks require intimate knowledge about the MSPs and the software they use. All right, so again, that was just part of the article. MSPs is something that has come up before. Basically, these managed service providers are software companies that offer their services to other ones. And you'll see this a lot with schools, doctor's offices, uh, and other businesses that have very specific software needs, but don't have the resources to employ a full IT department to handle, you know, installing and updating all all these software services. So they often farm that out to these MSPs who do it for them. So that's why you really want to go up the supply chain. You want to attack the MSPs because then all of a sudden you get access to all of their customers. And we are seeing this uh, happen more and more with these ransomware gangs. Okay, more fun stuff coming up next. Uh, Microsoft has another security threat, and this one's being called Print Nightmare. This is from a Lifehacker article that tells you how to avoid it, but it also, along the way, explains what happened. So let me just read this article. Microsoft warns of a potentially major zero-day security flaw in Windows print spooler code. While Microsoft has not identified the severity of the vulnerability, dubbed Print Nightmare, it sounds pretty bad. The company says outside users could exploit Print Nightmare to gain elevated administrator privileges and execute code remotely. In other words, it's an open invitation for hackers to gain control of a PC and install malware, ransomware, steal or destroy important data, and more, without requiring physical access to the computer. You know, real black hat stuff. Privacy Nightmare affects the Windows print spooler in all versions of Windows, including the versions installed on personal computers, enterprise networks, Windows servers, and domain controllers. Worse, print spooler is already being actively exploited by hackers due to a fumbled proof-of-concept attack. Security researchers at Sangfor discovered the print nightmare exploit along with several other zero-day flaws in the Windows print spooler services. The group created POC exploits, and that's proof-of-concept, as part of an upcoming presentation on the flaws. I wonder if that's going to be at uh, DEF CON or Black Hat. The researchers believed the vulnerabilities were already patched and published them on GitHub. So while Microsoft had, in fact, patched some of the zero-day print spooler vulnerabilities in a recent security update, Print Nightmare remains unpatched. While Sangfire's original Print Nightmare POC is no longer on GitHub, the project was replicated before it could be taken down. In other words... A bunch of people downloaded that code, so it's it's out there. Microsoft says it's working on a patch to fix the print nightmare flaw, but there's evidence the POC exploit has been used. Businesses and enterprise users are the most vulnerable to the exploit, but general users could be at risk too. Microsoft is urging users to disable the Windows print spooler service on their PCs. Network administrators can disable and restore Windows print spooler and remote printing with a group policy, but general users will need to turn it off using PowerShell commands which will safeguard your PC against any print nightmare threats. Okay, and this is where Lifehacker tells you how to do this. So if you've got a Windows machine, you very seriously might want to do this. So first, use the taskbar or Windows start menu to search for PowerShell. That's P-O-W-E-R-S-H-E-L-L, all one word. Right-click on PowerShell, 
and select Run as Administrator. And if you've got your Windows device set up properly, you are not running as administrator normally, so you're going to have to give it administrator credentials to get past that point. In the PowerShell prompt, run the following command to disable Windows Print Spooler. And every one of these words is capitalized. Stop dash service space dash name space spooler space dash force. And then run this command to prevent Windows from re-enabling Print Spooler services at startup. And again, every one of these is capitalized. Set dash service space dash name space spooler space dash startup type space disabled. Keep your Windows print spooler services disabled until Microsoft patch is available and installed at your PC sometime in the near future. Once it's safely patched, you can re-enable the print spooler services in PowerShell using the set service dash name spooler startup type automatic and start service. Anyway, you'll have to look this up. So it's really hard to give these commands uh, verbally. But if you, again, go to the show notes and find the link to this article, all this information is there. Now, I'm, I'm guessing I, I've got a Windows machine, but I never print from it. So I'm guessing if you do this, that means you probably can't print anything until this is done. But this sounds pretty serious. So if I were you, uh, and I would do this until this gets fixed. All right, next up, and this is a story from Wired. Uh, it's about Fancy Bear, which is a fun name, but it's basically a rushing hacking group um, that is trying to brute force their way into uh, multiple different accounts. So uh, let me read this story from Wired. The discovery of Russia's devastating SolarWinds spy campaign put the spotlight on the sophisticated supply chain hacking techniques of Moscow's foreign intelligence hackers. But now it's apparent that throughout the SolarWinds spying and its fallout, another group of Kremlin hackers has kept up their usual daily grind, using basic but often effective techniques to pry open practically any vulnerable network they find across the U.S. and the global Internet. On Thursday, the NSA, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, and the UK's National Cybersecurity Center issued a joint advisory warning of hundreds of attempted brute force hacker intrusions around the world, all carried out by Unit 26165 of Russia's GRU Military Intelligence Agency, also widely known as Fancy Bear, or APT-28. And APT stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. The hacking campaign has targeted a broad swath of organizations, including government and military agencies, defense contractors, political parties and consultancies, logistics companies, energy firms, universities, law firms, and media companies. In other words, practically every sector of interest on the Internet. The hacking campaign has used relatively basic techniques against those targets, guessing usernames and passwords en masse to gain initial access. But cybersecurity agencies warn that the Fancy Bear campaign has nonetheless successfully breached multiple entities and exfiltrated emails from them, and that it's not over. The GRU's Unit 26165, more than the SVR intelligence agency spies who carried out the SolarWinds campaign, have a history of highly disruptive hacking. Fancy Bear was behind the hack and leak operations that have targeted everyone from the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign in 2016 to the Olympic International Organization Committee and the Worldwide Anti-Doping Agency. But there's not yet any reason to believe that this latest effort's intentions go beyond traditional espionage, says John Holtquist, vice president at security firm Mandiant and longtime GRU tracker. The inclusion of energy sector targets in that hacking campaign raises an extra red flag, especially given that another GRU hacking team, Sandworm, remains the only hackers ever to trigger actual blackouts, 
sabotaging Ukrainian electric utilities in 2015 and 2016. The Department of Energy separately warned in early 2020 that hackers had targeted a U.S. energy entity just before Christmas in 2019. And this is a quote from Hulkquist. He says, quote, I'm always concerned when I see GRU in the energy space. It's important to remember Russia is a petrostate. They have a massive interest in the energy sector. That's going to be part of their intelligence collection requirements, unquote. In the wake of a meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin at a summit in Geneva held partly to diffuse tensions over Russia's SolarWinds espionage campaign, the latest news of Russian hacking might appear to be a slap in the face to the U.S. diplomatic efforts. After all, Biden laid out for Putin 16 areas of U.S. critical infrastructure that he designated as off-limits for any hacking operation, including the energy sector. But it remains unclear which, if any, of those particularly sensitive infrastructure targets the GRU's mass brute force campaign might have penetrated, or if any occurred after the summit rather than prior to it. Regardless, Mandiant's John Hulquist argues no meeting between Biden and Putin, or any other diplomatic measure, will ever be able to stop the eternal cat-and-mouse game of espionage. And another quote from Hulquist, he says, quote, Does this mean that things have already broken down with Russia? No, there's nothing we could ever do to get Moscow to stop spying. It's just not going to happen. We will always live in a world where the Russians are collecting intelligence, and that will always include a cyber capability, unquote. And I'll just follow up by saying that <laughs> there's nothing that's ever going to stop the U.S. from doing the exact same thing. We do this too. Espionage is something that all countries do. Some of us are just better than others. And yeah, I said us. <laughs> we do this too. So the real difference is when you go from collecting information to actually using that information in some nefarious way, which we do that too. So our best approach here, as always, should be defense. All right, let's move on. A couple more stories here. And yet another vulnerability in a consumer product. So this is from ZDNet. CISA, which I just mentioned in the last article, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the United States, has released a new ICS advisory about a vulnerability found in a widely used through-tech tool that gives attackers access to audio and video feeds as well as other sensitive information. On top of the potential for data and video leakage, the company admitted that the vulnerability allows hackers not just to spoof a device, but hijack a device's certificate. CISA gave the vulnerability a score of 9.1 out of 10 on the CVSS Vulnerability Severity Scale. ThruTech software components are used broadly by security camera and smart device vendors. Their tools are incorporated into millions of connected devices ranging from IP cameras to baby and pet monitoring cameras, as well as robotic and battery devices. It is also an integral part of the supply chain for multiple original equipment manufacturers of consumer-grade security cameras and IoT devices. Security company Nozomi Network Labs discovered the vulnerability in ThruTech's P2P or peer-to-peer -peer SDK or Software Development Kit and sent a notice about it to ThruTech. The notice prompted CISA to release its own statement saying the vulnerability was remotely exploitable and was not complex to attack. The P2P functionality allows users to look at audio and video streams through the internet. And this is a quote from that CISA um, press release. It says, quote, ThruTech's P2P products do not sufficiently protect data transferred between the local device and ThruTech servers. This can allow an attacker to access sensitive information such as camera feeds, unquote. Now, this next, uh, <laughs> this next paragraph has a lot of quote unquotes in it. I guess this is ZDNet being a little cheeky. But let me, let me get through this paragraph. It says, in a statement, ThruTech said that they, quote-unquote, discovered that some of their customers were implementing the company's SDK, quote-unquote, incorrectly or had, quote-unquote, disregarded their SDK version updates. They noted that the vulnerability was addressed in SDK version 3.3 and onwards in 2020, 
but was still a problem for anything up to and including version 3.1.5. CISA added that generally users should minimize their risks by reducing network exposure for all control system devices and ensuring none are accessible from the internet. IT administrators should locate control system networks and remote devices behind firewalls and isolate them from the business network, according to CISA. P2P component flaws have long been cited as one of the gravest risks to the use of IoT devices. In 2019, a vulnerability with iLink P2P left more than 2 million IoT devices at risk of compromise. So again, this was expurgated its uh, bits and pieces of a longer article. But another basically supply chain attack. A lot of these devices use this through tech software tool to somehow administer or configure or access these cloud functionalities of these devices, and they screwed it up. And then they went and blamed everybody who's using the products for not using the latest version of those products, when in actuality, it could be very difficult to figure out what version of software tools or libraries or SDKs are used in all these devices. Uh, and actually, file that note away, because I'll be coming back to that subject in the uh, the outro for today's show, because I've got a really cool interview coming up about that exact topic. All right, last article, and this will lead to our tip of the week. And this one is about robocalls, which we all hate. It's gotten so bad, I I just cannot answer my phone unless I absolutely recognize who is calling me. And because I've given my home phone number my what used to be my old landline number and is now a uh, VoIP number through Vonage, because I've given that out to so many companies and basically anybody who required a phone number, I, I just never answer my home phone. I've actually turned the ringer off. I get transcribed voicemails from Vonage, and if they leave a voicemail, I can at least read it and immediately decide if I want to go back and listen to that or not. And I'm sure a lot of you are in the exact same boat. It has just gotten so bad. So anyway, this article, um, these actually a couple articles here from CNET, talks about why things might be getting better and also what you can do to uh, help to stop these robocalls. All right, so from CNET, it says, A big deadline in the fight to beat back those annoying robocalls is here. As of today, and this was written on June 30th, every major voice provider in the U.S., including phone companies AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, and cable provider Comcast, will need to implement a technology called stir shaken designed to curb the tide of spam calls. That's good news for everyone whose phone has been jangling with bogus phone calls involving health-related scams, expiring car warranties, and fake banks offering non-existent interest rate discounts for credit cards. For years, the scourge of illegal robocalls has plagued the public. It's the number one consumer complaint and a top priority at the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC. U.S. consumers have received just under 22 billion robocalls in the first five months of the year, on pace to hit over 52 billion robocalls for the year, according to Umail, a company specializing in blocking robocalls. Robocalls use automated dialers and recorded messages. To be fair, not all robocalls are bad or annoying. Some businesses and public entities use robocalls to communicate important information. For example, your pharmacy may use an automated message to tell you your prescription is ready to be picked up, or your kid's school may be alerting you to a snow day. These are legitimate robocalls, and they require that consumers sign up to receive them. Then there are the illegal robocallers. Because robocalls are cheap to make, they've been exploited by scammers all over the world who use them to defraud billions of dollars from Americans every year. And I'm sure this is not just an American problem. The problem has gotten so bad that many of us don't answer the phone when it rings, especially if it's an unfamiliar number on the caller ID. All too often, scammers disguise their phone numbers to trick people into answering. 
an end to these annoying and costly calls could be on the horizon thanks to the implementation of stir slash shaken, which will require voice providers to verify where calls are coming from. That's where the FCC's June 30th deadline comes in. To help you get a handle on that and other efforts to stamp out robocalls, CNET has put together this FAQ. And I've removed some of the questions and just provided the answers here. STIR stands for Secure Telephone Identity Revisited, and SHAKEN stands for Signature-Based Handling of Asserted Information Using Tokens. Now, obviously, this is what we call a retronym. Someone kind of figured out what letters they sort of wanted to use and then created the acronym word first and then came up with some nonsense words to kind of make an English acronym out of that. The U.S. government in particular loves to do that. Okay, so STIR is the technical protocol and SHAKEN is the framework by which calls could be tracked in the new robocall mitigation database. The way it works is that STIR SHAKEN technology ensures that calls traveling through phone networks have their caller ID signed as legitimate by originating characters and validated by other carriers before the call reaches you. In short, the technology authenticates a phone call's origin and makes certain the information on the caller ID matches. Spoofing is when callers disguise their identity by deliberately falsifying the information transmitted to your caller ID display. Scammers do this to make calls less easily traceable. Also, by using so-called neighbor spoofing, which makes it appear as though the number is a local one that you may already know or trust, scammers try to trick you into picking up a call. So if you've noticed that you get these strange phone calls from numbers that are very close to your own, that's why. In the U.S., most phone numbers are 10 digits long, which is an area code, an office code, and a station number. And very often you'll find that the number is supposedly from your area code and often from the same office code to make it look like it's kind of coming from your neighborhood somewhere. Maybe you're thinking, oh, this is a neighbor calling me or my some local business. It's not. Under the Truth in Caller ID Act, the FCC's rules prohibit any person or entity from transmitting misleading or inaccurate caller ID information with the intent to defraud, cause harm, or wrongfully obtain anything of value. And this is a key thing here. It says, spoofing isn't illegal if there's no intent to cause harm. Illegal spoofers can face fines of up to $10,000 per violation of the law. Spoofing that's intended to hide identity can be permitted under certain circumstances. For example, law enforcement agencies working on cases, victims of domestic violence, or doctors wishing to discuss private medical matters may all be exempt from these rules. The TRACED Act, which is again is another tortured retronym, which stands for Telephone Robocall Abuse Criminal Enforcement and Deterrence, was signed into law in December 2019 by President Donald Trump. It basically makes compliance with the stir-shaken technology mandatory for all voice service providers. The law directed the FCC to come up with rules to require voice providers to implement the technology within 18 months. Does this mean that we'll see a huge drop in robocalls come July 1st? That's the hope. But sadly, it probably won't be the reality. For one thing, some carriers have already implemented stir and shaken, so the deadline won't necessarily mark a hard switchover for most phone companies. It's a technology and framework they've been implementing and deploying for a while. The second reason is that scammers are always coming up with new ways to make illegal robocalls. The sad truth is that making these calls is cheap and scamming people is lucrative. And here's a quote from FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, who said, quote, it ends up being a game of whack-a-mole. So the long-term solution is still difficult. We'll see how much progress we can make, unquote. So the other problem here is that a lot of these robocalls start from someplace outside of the countries where these laws are in effect. So if a robocall is actually started outside the U.S. in some country that doesn't 
care about you spoofing your caller ID and then gets routed through the U.S., my guess is that these stir and shaken fancy technologies will be completely moot. All they'll really be able to do in that case is say that we cannot verify this number, which honestly may be enough. I mean, certainly if I get, you know, caller ID that says this number can't be verified and then give some random number, that tells me not to answer that phone call. So that brings us to the tip of the week on uh, how to how to avoid robocalls, which is still not a cut and dried science. And I got a lot of this from, uh, I think it was Lifehacker. So I'm actually going to just read this article and just make comments as I go through. And uh, this is written from the first person. So just realize that when I'm reading, I did this or I said that or whatever in this article, that's not me saying this. I will try to call attention to that where I think it's important. All right. So first of all, you know, the FCC, the U.S.'s Federal Communication Commission, has some steps that they recommend for avoiding robocalls. They're, you're probably familiar with these, but nevertheless, let me rattle through them because I think they're it's, it's good to know. So first, don't answer calls from blocked or unknown numbers. Again, that's something that I think we've all just done. That's certainly something I do. Don't answer calls from numbers you don't recognize. Same thing. Don't assume an incoming call is really from a local number just because it looks like it is. Okay, so again, the bottom line here is that that caller ID can be totally spoofed. Whoever's calling you has total control over what that number is. And the only hope we have now is that our phone companies are looking at that number and can at least tell us whether or not they can verify that that is the actual calling number or not. All right, now these next ones are interesting, and you may not have heard these before. Um, Again, this is still part of the list from the FCC. It says, don't respond to any questions that could be answered with a yes. And that goes, I think, with this next one. It says, if you do answer a call and hear a recording such as, hello, can you hear me? Just hang up. Because obviously the answer to that question would be yes. If someone calls you and claims to be with XYZ company, hang up and call the company yourself. Use the company's website to find an official number. The same goes for a call where you're asked to press a number before being connected to a representative. When you answer a call and interact with a voice prompt or by pressing a number, it lets spammers know your number is real. They can then sell your number to another company or begin targeting your number more frequently. It's not really mentioned here, but I think another problem with some of these things is these robocalls is we're certainly getting to the point where if they can get your recorded voice to say enough things, and they can certainly prompt you in ways to get you to say words and phonemes that they would find valuable, such that they can, if they get enough of samples of your voice talking, they can then turn that around and have you say whatever they want you to say. And that could certainly, they could certainly find clever uses for that uh, to use against you. All right, now this article goes on and talks about some other potential services and apps and things that you can pay for to help you screen your calls better and maybe avoid robocalls. I'm not necessarily advocating any of these. I've not used any of these, uh, but I wanted you to be aware of them in case you wanted to look into these yourself, do a little research and decide if this is something you want to do. I'll probably still inject some opinions about these as we go, but I wanted to uh, finish reading this article and give you some more ammo here in case there's something else you'd like to try. When it first launched, Google's call screen feature arguably went against the FCC's advice by answering and interacting with the robocall on your behalf. However, Google added new features to call screen for its Pixel phone lineup. The feature can now detect robocalls and spam calls and block them before they ever reach your phone. Google Assistant will interact with the caller, and if it determines that the call is legitimate, it will route the call to your phone. So basically, this is like a a phone version of a CAPTCHA. You've got a private digital assistant, you've got two robo things talking to each other. 
Uh, and the one in Google case here is actually trying to act on your behalf to make sure that whoever's calling you is a real person or whatever. I'd be very interested to see how a Google Assistant actually handles a robocall. Like, can it actually somehow verify that a robocall is legit? Anyway, moving on. Apple's iOS 13 added the option to silence unknown callers, which adds the option to route calls from numbers not found in your contacts, mail, or messages straight to voicemail. Any legitimate callers can leave a message. But that's the rub. We often receive important calls from numbers we don't store on our phones, like a doctor's office or a repairman. So you could miss important calls this way. But if all else fails and you're desperate to stop robocalls, this is a valid option. So I do use this technique sometimes myself as well. But the way I use it is as follows. I make sure that anybody I'm expecting a phone call from or a callback from, I have taken the number and put it into my contacts with a valid name. So that my doctor or repairman or the pharmacy or wherever I'm getting a phone call from, hopefully they'll use the number that they have published to call from. And then that will show up as something, something I know. Now, I have seen where some businesses' phone systems, because, you know, they've got 20, 100 employees or whatever, when they place calls out from their number, sometimes they, you know, the outgoing caller ID is actually their direct line, which if I know it, great, I can put that in my contacts. Sometimes it's kind of a random number, like they are assigned a bank of phone numbers, uh, and they don't actually even know what number is going to be selected to be shown as their calling number when they call you. So in that case... This method doesn't work. All right, back to the article. If you find yourself receiving a lot of spam text messages, you can forward the message to the number 7726, which if you look at the, your phone you know, texting number conversion, that spells the word spam. It won't stop the number from texting you right away, but it will allow your carrier to look into where it came from and put an end to it. Because whenever you send a text message, it goes through your carrier, AT&T, Verizon, Orange, O2, whatever, whoever your carrier is. And so then it would be up to your phone carrier, cell phone carrier to act on that. And hopefully if it gets enough people doing that, it will realize that's a uh, spammer and start blocking it for everybody. All right. Now here's a part of the article that I kind of cut out. And if you really want to look this up, you can uh, just look at the show notes and go to this article. Uh, and it says all four major wireless carriers offer some sort of call blocking feature. All have a free option and a premium tier. But let's be honest, all robocall blocking services should be free. This shouldn't be a way for carriers to make some money off of us. And I will just say a quick amen to that. So anyway, they, they go through the U.S. carriers in this list, uh, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon. Um, and you can look into that if you want. I don't think I would personally go that route. But uh, if you're desperate, you know, you might check that out. All right. Uh, so skipping that, that detail from the article and moving on, it says, If your provider doesn't offer an app for a service to cut back on robocalls, or does but it's too expensive, there are plenty of third-party apps available. You might want to find an app that works on your device, offers automatic call blocking and spam alerts for suspicious calls, and makes it easy to report a number if a call slips through. So again, it's going to talk about, I think, three different apps here. Um, I don't specifically recommend any of these, but you know, if you want to do a little further research, uh, here's some you might check out. Haya, that's spelled H-I-Y-A, is a free app I have used on Android and iOS for some time now with success. It's from the same company that powers AT&T's Call Protect app, as well as Samsung's built-in call block and spam protection service. Samsung Galaxy owners can enable the built-in service in the phone app under Settings, Call ID, and Spam Protection. Setup is painless, and it offers an easy way to report a number. Nomo Robo, that's N-O-M-O-R-O-B-O, is the service that Verizon uses for its Fios users but it also has a phone app. The service is free for VoIP users and costs two bucks a month for mobile users. 
Additional services with similar capabilities include Umail and RoboKiller. And then finally, the Firewall app is also available on the iPhone and does a fantastic job of blocking calls. In the event you need to make a call that you'd rather not use your real number for, the $4 a month subscription provides unlimited single-use fake phone numbers. So that is a really interesting option, and I wish there was more of this. Um, And we're going to talk about another one here that's free. Well, like anything, Google can be free. Uh, that you might use, but it's, you know, sometimes it's kind of like having a, a fake email address or using Apple's uh, relay services or Firefox's relay services where you can create these kind of junk emails that route to your real email and hide your real email address. We need this now for phone numbers too. Your phone number is arguably better than your social security number or whatever your local government ID number is because you can port it always. Whenever you change services, you can just take your number with you and you don't want to have to tell everybody your new phone number. So we just stick to it. And so that number has become a very big identifier for marketers and bad guys. So I will say this firewall app, I'm surprised Apple even allows it because from what I read briefly on this, it actually takes the place of your your phone app. So you would get full access to your contacts. It would you know receive and place all your phone calls. Uh, I'm actually shocked that Apple even allows an app like that to exist. But honestly, what I really what I really want is I want Apple to build this functionality into their phone app. And I wish Google would do the same. All right, anyway, speaking of Google, there's one more option here that this article talks about. Another option is to sign up for a free Google Voice phone number that you can use to sign up for things instead of giving out your real number. And once the robocalls start coming in on that Google Voice number, use the block feature. Just know that blocking calls may end up being a lot of work as robocallers are constantly spoofing different phone numbers. None of the above solutions are perfect, but they supplement the carrier's integration of technology now required to check for caller ID spoofing. So right now you have to do some extra work to keep the number of robocalls you receive to a minimum. Between being cautious about calls from unknown numbers and using a service, paid or free, you can reduce the number of unwanted calls and spam you have to deal with. Again, carriers have started using stir-shaken technology to verify callers, which should cut down on the number of robocalls we all receive. So there you have it, the news of the week and the tip of the week. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in again. Subscribe if you have not already. That way you make sure you don't miss an episode. I have not gotten any new reviews for the podcast in a long time. I would love to get some of those. So uh, if you have a moment, please go to uh, iTunes. It's probably the best place to do it and leave a nice review for the podcast. I need fresh ones all the time too. So even if I get some now, I need more in the future. So as I said, I'm going to start trying to just do... uh, back and forth between news and interviews and have all the interviews be in a single show instead of splitting them up in two. We'll see how that goes. But I want to get on a schedule that kind of lines up with the newsletter and the blog as well for the tip of the week. I don't always use the same thing, but I often do. So uh, because I did two interviews in a row, I am now going to be doing two news shows in a row. So we'll have another news show for you next week, and then we'll get into the back and forth between interviews and news. I've got a really cool interview next week. I kind of alluded to this earlier. Uh, it's from Alan Friedman, and we're going to be talking about software bill of materials, SBOM. <laughs> and I'm sure you're already glazing over thinking, what is that? That does not sound fun. But it's actually crucial, crucial technology, um, and it's something that could make a huge difference in, in all of our lives in terms of security and even for, for privacy. So that's going to be very interesting. You don't want to miss that. And then in the future, I just recorded some really great interviews, uh, one with Johnny Ryan, who's from uh, Ireland, and he's part of a group that is suing a lot of data brokers uh, over real-time bidding, which is basically a, a massive data breach technology because it shares tons of very personal information on all of us every day, constantly. That was a really, really interesting interview. 
And then after that, also another very interesting interview in a different way, a really cool cybersecurity technology called Morpheus, where I talked to Professor Todd Austin uh, from the University of Michigan, whose group is doing some really, really cool cutting edge uh, security work on computer processors. And that's going to be a technical interview, but you, you're going to want to listen to that one too. And I, don't worry, we'll explain all the terms. But this is exactly the kind of thing that we need to be doing to, uh, to really shut down a lot of these horrible software vulnerabilities. And then, right about the same time, I will be going to DEF CON, which is one of the largest hacking conferences on the planet. It is back in person again this year. I'm going for my very first time. It'll be in Las Vegas in early August. And I have never done this before, uh, but I am going to try to actually record the podcast from the conference, but I'm not, I'm not going to try doing it live. Uh, we'll see how this goes first. And then, you know, maybe in the future I might, you know, kick it up a notch and try that. But uh, what I'm going to be doing is basically I'm bringing some portable recording equipment with me and I'm going to be recording various pieces of my experience at the DEF CON conference, including if I'm lucky a really killer interview, but I thought it'd be really kind of fun for you guys to kind of vicariously follow with me along uh, at the show. And the show ends on Sunday, right before the podcast. So what I'm, what I'm hoping to do, and we'll see if this works, I'm going to try to record it as I go, edit it locally there on my laptop and post it for everybody to have on that Monday. Now (laughs) remains to be seen if I could pull that off, but even if I can't pull that off, I will post it very soon after I get back. So anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun. And of course, I will also be getting all sorts of really cool extra bonus content uh, from DEF CON that I'll be sharing with patrons. And every one of those interviews I just mentioned also has great bonus content too, all of which will be going out to the patrons. Oh, and I was going to mention this too. Patreon actually offers a way for me to have a private podcast. Um, it's a link that you click on with your podcast app that you subscribe to like any other podcast, except this one is private just for you. Uh, and only for patrons. So all this bonus content that I'm creating now, all this extra audio content, uh, either from interviews or from other things, uh, I think I'm just going to put that all into a private podcast and that'll make it a lot easier for me to distribute and a lot easier for you to listen to. So again, lots of really cool new stuff coming for patrons, but also for the rest of you, these, these interviews are really great. I'm having such a good time with some of these interviews. So lots of great stuff coming. And again, subscribe if you haven't, that way you won't miss any of this stuff. And if you could leave me a really nice review, I would very, very much appreciate it. And if I see them on iTunes, I will read them here on the air. I've got some other night errants to announce. I'm still waiting to hear back from some of them, but expect to hear some more of those on the podcast coming up, hopefully along with some taglines from them as well. All right, that's going to do it again. Another new show for you next week. Until then, stay cool, stay safe, get those vaccines if you haven't already, help others to get theirs. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.